I'm Simon Rimmer and this is Grilling, the podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, in which we get inside the minds of some of the best chefs on the planet. We find out when they developed their passion for food and how they cultivated it, hopefully providing you with a bit of culinary inspiration along the way. We'll be talking about cooking outdoors too, of course, which is something today's guest is very well versed in. Now, amongst those who have already joined me on the podcast, Ken Hom, Angela Hartnett, Nadia Hussain, Gokwan and Marcus Waring. But today, we're grilling none other than Bill Granger. Bill initially studied art in Sydney before focusing his attention on food. He opened his first restaurant in Darlinghurst in 1993 and has not looked back. Now overseeing a business empire that spans the globe. He's also written loads of books and is a favourite on our screens. Bill, thank you very much for joining us on Grilling. Oh, it's a pleasure. So, so you and I have a shared background that we're both former art students. Oh, I didn't know that about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no. so, so I have a degree in fashion and textile design. Right. And I fell in love with the hospitality industry when I was studying, which is exactly ah, the same as you. Exactly the same as me. And I think I did fine art. I started off in architecture, dropped it after a term. It was like, this is too rigid and complicated for yeah. me. I just didn't, my, I couldn't concentrate. A bit ADD like that. I've got, yeah, I need to be more physical. And then started fine art, but got a job in a restaurant. And I just fell in love with the, the collaborative nature of working with people and yeah. that energy you get from working in a restaurant. It just really, something clicked. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think, so many people that, well, in our industry, never mind mm. the interview on grilling, it's that same thing, almost like from that minute you walk into a hospitality environment, I felt like this is what I should do. Even yeah. when I was, you know, I was a student and at the time I thought I was going to be a designer and worked as a designer for a while, I still remember that first feeling, that first shift in a restaurant, in a bar, and you go, this is cool. Yeah. It's good working with people. And if you like, I mean, I love people. Yeah. Like I like talking to people and having a chat. And when you've got, Great customers. And in hospitality, everyone's a regular. You know, so you have these, you build relationships constantly. You build relationships with your, you know, your coworkers. But not only that, you've, it's balanced out by, you know, building it with your customers, which I love. I love that sort of, yeah, yeah that mix up of it. So when you were growing up, was food always a big part of your life? Oh, strangely, my dad had butcher shops. So my right. grandfather had a chain of butcher shops um, when butcher shops were, you know, really, really popular. And he, he did that. My father, did that, but wasn't so interested. He just followed it, I think, because his father did. And food was never really a part of our family life. My mother was part of a generation that, you know, we wanted to start working, not cooking. That idea, it just wasn't, we weren't a big foodie so family. So where, where, where were you brought up? I was brought up in Melbourne. So paint the picture then. So yes. Mel Melbourne, when you're, when you're growing up. Yeah. What was it like? What was it like? I don't know. So food-wise, culture-wise, everything. Know. Okay, did you watch Neighbours? When yes. no, <laughs> I did. It did yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what it was like when I was older. But when I was younger, it was very English. I mean, yeah. my growing my family's their backgrounds all English, so our food was English. I had a roast dinner every night. Yeah. My dad was a butcher. It was you know roast meats. But at that time in the seventies in Melbourne, when I was quite young in the eighties, you'd had a wave of migration post-war. Um, to Australia, people coming to work, you know, from Greece, from Italy. And that really changed Australia hugely. It changed the food scene mm -hmm. enormously. Do yeah. you kind of remember that happening? Because, you know, we're, we're similar age. Mm. And I remember, like, British food was kind of really rubbish. And I remember yeah. British food being really rubbish. And then right the way through my childhood, then, like, you know, we'd go on holiday to Italy or to Spain. You think, wow, this food is brilliant. So do you remember that change beginning to happen? Absolutely. I remember, you know, in Australia, eating out in restaurants, so general food culture 
you had fancy restaurants, you know, like the UK, where you'd yeah. go for a birthday or you would have on a Friday night, you go to the local Chinese, yeah. which a friend of mine's family owned. And that was about it. That was yeah. sort of eating out, High eating out culture. No, it was nothing like Europe or Asia where you eat out casually and cheaply. It was only, exactly, yeah. very formal. But I really remember that change. I remember traveling and, you know, I remember that when food writers would have to go to Italy or France and that's what they'd be writing books on. That's what they'd be talking about. And, you know, whether, you know, started with Elizabeth David coming and telling us these stories yeah. of other places. But I think what changes it, I mean, I think migration totally changed that attitude to eating casually. Yeah. Because I think getting people from a, you know, Anglo-Saxon background to eat out yeah. all the time isn't something that culturally was normal. And I think that's what really changed it, that people would go out and have a casual meal. And then, you know, it's the socialising. It's the way you live. Eating out is part of the way we live now. Yeah. You know, it's not just special. It's, you know, what we do. Yeah. It was that price point, wasn't it? I mean, you know, earlier in Australia than here, that, mm. like you say, all of a sudden it was like, well, this is actually, I can afford to do this. This yeah. is no longer a luxury. Mm. And it also changed the industry, I guess, as well. Absolutely. I mean, it, it made the industry explode. I think it all came together in the late 80s in Sydney. I can remember and Neil Perry, who's an amazing Australian chef. He's sort of the, you know, he started yeah, so many things. Incredible. Incredible energy and enthusiasm. And I remember he did, you know, probably the first super designed restaurant in yeah. Sydney. It was about 1987. And, you know, I remember going to New York and to the Royalton Hotel and, you know, Shraga Hotels and seeing these incredibly designed hospitality spaces and before that before the mid 80s that didn't happen no you know you know people would have a bentwood chair a tablecloth nothing was designed and then of course you had terence conran here and that idea of bringing all of these this lifestyle this idea of design i mean design wasn't like it is now you couldn't go no. and buy something cheaply that wasn't you know that was yeah. well designed yeah and that all sort of happened i think in the late 80s and then the 90s it really started to explode in australia so when you were growing up was art always going to be what you did, art or architecture? Is that, is that your... No, I didn't really know. I think because my mother worked in fashion, in the fashion industry, uh -huh. and my dad was in retail with the butcher shops, and then he changed um, and went into wholesaling. I didn't know. I knew it would be creative. Yeah. I was interested in, like, you know, fashion, art, architecture, restaurants I loved. Yeah. I loved going to restaurants when, yeah. you know, people exactly taken away. That's the same list as me. Really, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's that creative. I'd yeah. look at that's what... And I think... You know, I say it to my girls, now, being a creative or having a creative vision is almost easier working out what you want to do because you can't imagine not doing anything. Yeah. Did, you, did your dad ever want you to go down that route? Of, no, yeah. never. My parents were really good. My father, dad went to school, and I remember I went to the same school as my father, and yeah. I remember the school saying, your dad would have been head, head boy. You know, my school was a big sort of cricket school. He was an amazing yeah. cricketer. Shane Warne went to the school. It was, and he said he left in year 11 because all he wanted to do was open a butcher shop. So he was, I always grew up with this idea that you do what you want. It doesn't matter what yeah. the expectations. And, you know, the flip side of it is not having any expectations is sometimes it's the balance. But I always thought I could just do yeah. whatever I liked. Yeah. It's funny, I've sort of said this before, that my dad is the person who made me be entrepreneurial and self-employed. My dad worked as a metallurgist, so he'd worked as, oh. a, as a scientist fundamentally. But he always hated his, well, I hate his job. It wasn't what he wanted to do. My dad wanted to be a carpenter. But his parents sort of forced him down a more academic route and he used to make furniture. So my dad always said to me, he goes, you know, whatever you do in life, he said, like, just do it for yourself. And I've, as a result, I've never had a job. Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. And, well, and I love that. And that's it, you know, in a, in a different, same way, but different than your parents are saying the same thing. Just chase your dreams. Chase your dreams. And I think that idea of working for yourself is a very unusual thing. And I think having a self-employed yeah. father 
or am a grandfather. That idea of working for myself was very normalized. Yeah. I think I didn't think it was weird. People said, how did you open a restaurant at 22, 23? And it's like, oh, I didn't think it was strange. Yeah. And I think when you're young, you're not as scared. And the idea of working for yourself or cr- making you, you have to create your own luck. Yeah. And you just have to work hard. And as I always say to anyone or anyone that works for me, as long as you're doing something well, someone will notice. Yeah. And that'll lead to something else. And you've just got to keep on doing it. But yeah. do what you like, but do it well. Yeah. Okay. So we, so we go through school. We go mm. to art college. Yeah. And then when did this little- when The shift happen. Yeah. Oh, I had a part-time job at this little cafe. Yeah. And so la- you're still in Melbourne at this stage, by no, the way? No, I'd moved to Sydney. Okay, so you moved to Sydney. I moved to Sydney at 19. Right. Yeah. And fell in love with Sydney. You know, I don't know if- the listeners have been to Australia, but Melbourne and Sydney are incredibly different. And when I was in Melbourne, Melbourne's more European. It's about being internal, inside, okay. great rooms, restaurants, people dress up. And going to Sydney is like, it's like New York, LA. You just have this explosion of light. People live on the street. And I just fell in love with it. Yeah. And they're very, it's very Australian. How different is the climate when you go from Melbourne? To- oh, completely different. Right. Completely different. It's yeah. um, warm nine months of the year in Sydney. You yeah. don't need a jacket when you go out at nine for yeah. nine months. In Melbourne, you always need a jacket, even if it's the middle of summer. Yeah. But I fell in, yes, I was in this amazing city. My eyes had been totally opened. Yeah. And I had this job in this little cafe, and the woman who ran it used to have the smartest, one of the smartest posh restaurants in Sydney. She'd separated from her husband, gone off to Vanuatu, met a guy on an island and come back with a guy, and they opened this little sort of island south of France, kind of her first husband was from the south of France, yeah. cafe for three hours a day, six days a week. Wow. Um, well, they had the kids and Jean-Claude, her husband, used to make these great frappes. She'd come in and it was amazing. You had the most incredible people come in. You'd have people like Penelope Tree, the famous model, or yeah. you know, the guys from the Beach Boys, all these very older bohemian Sydney-siders. And I loved it. I just fell in love with this sort of thing. And she said to me, I'm not using it at night. If you want to do anything at night here, you can rent it off me and do your own thing. So I thought, oh, yeah, it could be quite fun. So could you cook then? No, but I was a good home cook. Yeah, okay. I was yeah, a really- same. Yeah, I, yeah. I love buying books. Like I'd buy yeah. the, you know, dinner party cookbooks, Woman's Weekly, which is like a, yeah. you know, a, a home journal kind of thing. And I fell in love with it. And yeah. I'd buy books that, you know, from Elizabeth David, you know, the, the good techie base books, Elizabeth yeah. David. And I, she came over for dinner and she said, oh, you should do it. She loved it. I was cooking out of a um, Pan-Asian book at the time I'd yeah. gotten. And I said, yeah, sure, maybe I could do that. So I had another friend. What year are we now, Bill? We are in eight, uh, 19, about 1990. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, 1990 or 1991. Yeah. And then I had another friend who became a waiter. I'd do the cooking and had another girl to help me. And I ran this sort of like little cafe where all my friends had come in and, and it was great. It was a great way to start because there was no overheads really. I had the rent, yeah. but there was none of the complicated stuff. It was a day you just take cash. I didn't take credit card. Yeah. It was very, very simple. And what kind of things were you cooking? Oh, well, it was a funny place. It only had a tea room license, so there was no kitchen. There was a little like a work prep area. Wow. The tea room license was an old thing, which was a bit like an A1 where you could yeah. heat things up but not really cook. Yeah. So I got a, you know, I'd have a little electric kettle and I'd steam asparagus in the electric kettle. So I'd do asparagus with some olive oil and lemon juice. I had a, on the coffee machine, I heated up soup on the spout. <laughs> my bristers now, I dived. I thought I'm putting soup near the really? machine. I had a little grill. I used to do things like garfish, just yeah. simply pan. I did a tagine. I'd... Um, cook it at my um, home and then bring it in and heat it up. Yeah, just in a like a little hot plate. So it was very. Uh, I mean, I think the food I cook, it's probably food of the sun. If okay. I think about it, That's I had a, a book. Nice yeah, and it was actually yeah. I just find I like sunny holiday food. Yeah, food that takes. How me, many covers were? You? Oh, there was eight tables. Four of them were two threes, twos or threes, and four yeah. four. So no twenty. 
it's really weird that like I, I've you know I've, I've known you for a long time, mm. but I've never known that this weird parallel that is happening already oh. in this right. So we opened Greens in 1990. Yeah, uh, we were 28 covers. We cooked off uh, domestic stoves and we didn't have a grill. So. There's, it's exactly the same. Well, when yeah. I opened Bill's in 92, 93, yeah. we were 28 seats, exactly yeah. 28. Yeah. And 28 seats, I always say to people, well, you we can do a restaurant, I say, do it small. Because the 28 seats, yeah. you can almost do without being a professional. Yeah. Can't you? You can sort of yeah, work it yeah. out. It's, it has its moments, but you can almost yeah. work it out. Yeah. So when, when did you get to the point then where you thought, you know what, I'm actually good at this and I need to now, whilst it's fun and I'm loving it and it's a kind of job, hmm. when was the shift you're right? Oh, okay. So I was really competitive, I think. Um, and my friends of mine had opened up a little a bar cafe. They're sort of like the cool boys. They haven't had a nightclub, a nightclub with a few uh-huh. nights. They'd opened up this these three guys and they were really cool. You know, they used to date all models and things. And I thought, uh-huh. oh, great. And they opened up this cafe called 191. And it really made me thought, okay, if they can do that, I want to do something. Okay. And so I looked for about eight months for a place. No one would rent me anything. Yeah. Obviously, I was so young with yeah. no track record. And I finally, after getting really disheartened, found what's bills that's still there. And it was $250 a week. It could only open Monday to Saturday. could only open from 7.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. And I was sort of desperate, so I thought, okay, I can do that. And because yeah. I'd known Chrissy, who'd had the cafe, which only opened for lunchtime, I didn't think it was weird that it couldn't, because I'd never worked nights in a restaurant. Yeah. And so I did it. And it was the guy who was renting it had half set it up for his girlfriend, but they'd broken up and... So I could go in there and hardly spend any money on it. Okay, all right. So, so, yeah. all right. Next parallel. Yeah. So when we bought greens, so we've been looking for about eight or nine months. Right. Uh, couldn't find anything. Didn't have any money. Nobody rent anything to us. So greens was already existing as a very sort of average kind of veggie calf. Yeah. The two guys who owned it had uh, fallen out massively. Huh. And then, yeah. <laughs> so and then, weird. And then, and then they booked to go around the world in opposite directions. They had a buyer. Last minute, the buyer pulled out, and we ended up buying it. Okay, this is, could be incredibly so weird. weird, Bill Granger. But it had no other diet. Yeah, I know, the arts background and things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I, yeah, well, and then two years later, my grandfather yeah. had done a thing where his grandchildren, because he was entrepreneurial, liked the idea we could borrow some money. Yeah. So he set up these policies where we could borrow 20000 Australian dollars and we had to pay it back. It wasn't, you know, a gift, but yeah. it was access to some money, which was amazing because my parents, you know, didn't have enough. They weren't the type just to give me money. Same. Yeah. So I did it and set up bills and I just, yeah, winged it. So did you have a vision when you went and built? Did you know what it was going to be? No, I knew, not a vision. I knew I wanted it to be beautiful, visual, because yeah. I'm a visual person. So I was really specific about the way I knew it looked. Yeah. I think at that stage I didn't have an idea as a restaurateur that I do now yeah. about looking after people and making them comfortable. I think in those days it was very much about me, about my personal expression. Yeah. and. I put together, yeah, the room was really simple. It was the 90s. And the great thing about the 90s, as you know, minimalism is really cheap. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, so yeah. there was people like, you know, the architect John Pawson doing things and, you know, Wagamama had just started. Yeah. Ellen Yao had done that. And that idea of communal dining and. Wow, John Pawson, that's a blast from the past. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're listening to this, you know who he is. Have a little check out because he is. I mean, he's sort of oh. the godfather of minimalism, really. Absolutely. Modern minimalism. Yeah, modernism yeah. and minimalism and all yeah. of those white walls and, yeah. and plain timber tables and. Yeah. And, you know, Alan Yao had just opened Wagamama, which yeah. was, I mean, I think in the UK especially, was hugely influential that you could eat cheaply, casual, you couldn't book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Phenomenal. The food had just come and it was, you know, Asian. 
yeah. which was, you know, completely different. Yeah. And I'd spent some time in Japan as well. I'd gone up to Japan on, as an art student and, and loved it. So yeah. all of those things and that idea, but just wanting to make people to come and get a good coffee. Because yeah. I'd come from Melbourne, which has got a good Italian culture. And you could go out and get a great coffee in Melbourne and you can get it. There were good cafe, Italian cafes, but there was nothing that was more like a modern style. They were all yeah. quite traditional. Yeah. And Sydney's food scene at the time then, was that booming? You know, oh. you sort of said about Melbourne sort of changing. Yeah. Well, Melbourne at that stage, Melbourne was always considered the good food city. So Melbourne, just a quick thing. Melbourne was, um, Sydney's a, you know, convict city. People yeah. were sent there. Melbourne's a free city. People went for the gold rush, basically. Okay. So people came later and built it from free settlers. So it's a bit of a different mentality. So it saw itself as more genteel, more sophisticated, even now more, you know, leaning toward the arts, whereas Sydney's brasher and, yeah. you know, quite different. And so that culture of restaurants in Melbourne that I grew up in, which is very Italian, very strong, really shifted in the late 80s and early 90s to Sydney, which was exploding with discovering, people like Neil Perry, discovering the flavours of Asia. It was a time that Paul Keating, you know, the um, Prime Minister, really connected us to Asia, really said to us, okay, we're part of this world now. We're not, you know, part of the UK. We're not part of France, Italy. We are part of Asia. And that really changed our attitude to food and the, our identity completely. Well, I remember, again, sort of, you know, on a, on a similar vein, one of the, we were probably about 94, we'd had greens for four years, and I employed a, an Aussie chef. Yeah. Uh, who was from Melbourne ah, originally. Yeah. Um, and then he came over to the UK and he really revolutionized and almost confirmed a lot of the things that we were doing, green, greens being veggie. And that whole thing about, that nearest land must be in Southeast Asia. Mm. His work in Australia had been very influenced by that. And he came in and just put together, and we've talked about Neil Perry, who that whole thing about kind of like that Pan-Asian fusion thing. Mm. And he really set us on a road that said, right, okay, there's no reason why you can't marry these two kind of cultures together yeah. or like multiple cultures. And that's exactly what, what you're talking about now. Absolutely. It was discovery. You know, I used to love going to, you know, spending time in Asia. I'd travel, I'd go up to Singapore and I'd eat in all of the local Chinese restaurants and I'd eat this food and love it. And you'd take your palate was, my palate was changing after growing up with, you know, very Anglo food and then to um, Italian and European food. My palate really changed. So I'd go and you'd want to recreate it. So you'd read books and find out how to do different dressings. And really... I love the way vegetables were used, you know, the way you chop up vegetables with Chinese cooking and it's, you know, they just touch the wok. You just get the breath of the wok in them. They're in and out and it's fresh and crunchy. And for me, the textures of the food in Asia were more appealing to me, especially in the climate of Australia. Yeah. And do you think as well, because that's all the, the, the techniques are, you talked about sunshine food and fresh food, that just suddenly started to make sense, you know, Australia, California, Southeast mm. Asia, all of a sudden you could kind of just by words on a menu and all of a sudden I found that, you know, we were using things like lemongrass and gallangal and yeah. all of a sudden here are ingredients that just speak of joy and, and, and celebration rather than heavy sauce, reduce, mm. reduce, reduce, lots of red wine. It felt that there's a lot of sunshine around. Absolutely. And I think if you think of all those high notes and you're doing a menu and, you know, yeah. the lime and the sit, as you're saying, everything was sparkling. It's a lovely word. Sparkling is exactly Sparkling and was, lifted yeah. up. And I think our palates, Again, you know, I think the food I do, it's not so sourced, it's dressed. It's quite different and the vegetables were different. I remember reading a food review, something in Australia, they said, oh, it's fantastic, this is from the States, but they don't cook their vegetables enough, yeah. which I loved, you know, and even, yeah. you know, traditional Italians cook their vegetables a lot. I yeah. love that idea of things being rawer, that idea of, 
you know, raw food, health. Yeah. Um, you know, Sydney is a city of physicality. People are outdoors. They really cared, you know, before all the health craze came. You know, Sydney siders have been, you know, pumping iron and doing exercise classes and trying to look good because you've got, your bodies are out all the time. You're yeah. on the beach. You don't wear a lot. So I think that idea of health, lifestyle, the climate in Australia as well, you get up early or in Sydney especially. Yeah. And that, yeah, really changed the way people use restaurants and the way they wanted to go out. So you have Bill's one. Mm. How long until the next one the came? Next one, yeah. Oh, the next one came. That's the hardest. I always tell anyone, if you open your second place, oh that is the worst because yeah. you're doubling your business. Yeah. You know, one is fine. You're getting in there. You're yeah. there all the time. You can almost keep a thing on it. But yeah. two, you're doubling a business. And that will never happen again that you double your business. No. And you've got to learn how to manage out of twice. So I had the first restaurant. And very luckily, um, a customer of mine had a cousin who owned a hotel. Uh-huh. And this hotel chain, they'd grown it a lot. We're still tenants there. But they wanted to do the rooms, but they didn't want to do any of the um, catering for it. So a service department. And they... Fitted out a little cafe, but they knew the hotel guests needed somewhere to have breakfast. Yeah. So they fitted out a cafe and got some people in to rent it. Um, not rent it, just go in there and pay the rent. Now, this yeah. couple, had, again, had had another falling out. They'd run it for a year <laughs> and a half. Yeah. So they said to me, would you like to take it over? All you have to do is come and just start paying the rent. But it's got the plates, the design, everything's done. You just have to pay the rent, which for a young business person, as you yeah. know, when restaurants are so intensive, capital intensive, I could just go in and start running a business. And that's wow. how I expanded it to two. In terms of geography, because I would sort of think that almost when you do that second restaurant, mm. the geography almost determines a lot as well. Mm. When you suddenly go, right, okay, I've got two places now. So like you say, I've doubled the size of my business, but also to get from one to the other, it's going to take me 40 minutes just to kind of Yeah, so that. it's a really good thing yeah. to think about that geography. I often think yeah. second places next door aren't a bad idea. Yeah. This was quite close. This was about a 20-minute walk. Okay. between them and it was quite easy so i used to walk it you know rather sometimes drive but I, even now i just walk them so they're really close stupid in a way because they're too close to compete really but they're quite different areas but um was the menu the same did you make that sense decision was, to kind of say you know let's keep the brand yeah the same? but uh, the menu was different because i had to do dinners because part of the lease was i had to open 365 days a year wow and breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right. So I had to open on Christmas Day. I remember doing those early Christmas days yeah. myself. I eventually said to them, actually, I don't think we need to do this. But originally, and I had to do dinner, which I had no idea. Yeah. So that was a lot of learning and making mistakes. But it was a great thing to do because I had no experience in anyone else's restaurant. And having a small 28-seater was fantastic. Only you know six days a week, so I could be there all the time. Yeah. And then learn when I grew how to do it. And it took a long time. I later made a lot of mistakes. How big was the second one, Bill? 45 seats. Okay. So a big step yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. And it was a big beast. And it was um, just operationally more expensive because everything was more expensive. We had to take credit cards, which I hadn't taken at the other place. Yeah. It was just bigger. You know, you had to, we could serve alcohol, which we couldn't at the other. So all of those things. So I just learned. Yeah. My second restaurant was uh, 47 covers for 28. <laughs> and Green's equally was BYO and we opened. And our second one, we could sell alcohol. <laughs> This is so weird. <laughs> it's really, and our second one was actually pretty close to the first one. Oh, this is so just, weird. This is too, too weird. But it was so luck to be able to do that thing of open a second one. And it is yeah. really hard. That second is, yeah. oh. Well, I think as well, you know, that thing you were saying, obviously also the expenses go up full stop because mm. when you're one, it's you. Yes. So you're the person ordering the napkins, sorting out the toilet if it's broken, yada, Absolutely. yada, yada. Suddenly you've got two and you've got to, 
start spinning those plates of and you need management and you yeah. need to know how to to employ people and inspire them and all of that which takes a long time to learn did especially you find, when you're stress running did you it. find with number two that you suddenly stopped being or you, you had to stop being the person that had this nice little business that was about you and so you think actually i've got to this has got to be a business with a capital b absolutely i think that was the biggest change for me was just learning and being comfortable with this weight. And I think when you start something young and, you know, after about five years, you know, and all my friends were going out and having that time and I always had this thing that's always there. And I think the thing about restaurants is they're always running. Yeah. You know, breakfast, lunch and dinner, seven days a week was always on. Yeah. And I think learning how to do that and learning how to manage people, yeah. inspire people, also to be their boss yeah. when you're young is really hard and not just be everyone's friend because. It's hard to be everyone's friend and to be a good boss. That's a, that's a massively important point, I think, because, again, when you have one, I've used this expression quite a lot, then you almost create your own disciples, don't you? Yes. That you say, right, yeah. I, am, I am the centre of this church and you were all my disciples and we all bow down to the church of Bill Graham. Yeah, and there's no real sort of hierarchy. Everyone just does the exactly. work. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But then when you have two, all of a sudden it's almost like, Daddy's leaving his children behind because he's got a fancy new family. Children, it's exactly like yeah. you give one attention, the other one's bad. Yeah. Yes, and no, they get really rejected yeah. and hurt. Yeah. And I remember losing my first chef from the start, and I think it was because I didn't give her time. And I think yeah. there are people who like working, and I always say to my kids, you've got to work out where you like to work. Yeah. Some people like to work in a bigger business yeah. with structure. Other people like to work in a small one you know, with the owner. Everywhere is different than what you like. And I think the hard thing is when you're transitioning your business from that, yeah, something bigger. That's that's the difficulty, or that's yeah. what takes learning. And I, and I think as well. I think that you know it's it's obvious that we're sort of cut from a similar cloth. I'm not very good, or I wasn't very good at being people's boss at first. I don't think. No, I think I I still wanted to be their friend too much. Mm. And it doesn't mean that you can't be friendly with people, but I found that so hard. Oh, it's so hard. And I think when you're also carrying the stress of it and the pressure of paying everyone, and yeah. you know, it's a big responsibility being responsible for everyone's livelihood yeah. and paying your suppliers on time for their livelihoods. And, you know, there's quite complex, big amounts of money when you don't have training yeah. in that to deal with. Plus giving people a career yeah. and rewarding them, you know, properly. And it's not, yeah, it's it's a lot of things to get right. I think restaurants are very interesting because they combine so many yeah. things. I spoke to someone who used to have restaurants in the 20s and then he went into property and made far, far much more money than me. And <laughs> yeah. he, said, <laughs> he said he sensibly got out early. But he said it gave him the best training. He learned everything he could possibly need in business from running those restaurants in the early days. And I, and I think on, on another level, I think that if, if somebody wants to go, if you're a young human being and you want to kind of go and do something that is incredibly exciting and you meet the biggest diverse group of people ever, hospitality is oh, the very best. It is. And you work with people. It's intimate. Yeah. You get to know people really well. It is a family. Yeah. You know, and I think people who work in hospitality, we're all a little bit left of centre. You know, yeah. we're not yeah. regular in an office job. Yeah. They're creative. There's a lot of people from art schools, people who, it's just quite an odd mix in yeah. a really lovely way. Yeah. And I loved, yeah, I love, still now, even my uh, general manager in the UK says, you know, it's a people business. It's not yeah. a business, it's just about people. And I think that's the important thing to remember. You've got to love people. Yeah. In hospitality, you just have to yeah. not get annoyed with them, not get annoyed with anyone. And you've just got to want to make people happy. I, I've always felt as well that with hospitality in the UK, and, I, and I'm sure 
in Sydney, probably even more so. But when I started working in hospitality in 84, 85, it struck me that you would work with every single creed, colour, sexual orientation, and everybody was a team. Mm. And it's almost that, you know, now, rightly so, the world has sort of changed when we're saying, okay, listen, everyone can be whatever they want to be. What we need to be is nice human beings. And I think that hospitality, whilst it's criticised a lot for bad hours, et cetera, et cetera, Mm. I think in terms of what it does in terms of allowing equality across everything. I don't know another industry that has been doing it for as long as hospitality. Oh, absolutely. And maybe it's the kind of businesses we ran as well. Yeah. And we've come from a non-traditional, very non-male environment, like yeah. some of those more traditional hospitality, but I think the newer hospitality. I mean, absolutely. Everyone, you know, it was great at Bill's in the early days. We'd have, you know, people parting hard from Mardi Gras, coming in with the nurses at the hospital, and I love that everyone was comfortable. Yeah. But everyone could be themselves. It didn't matter on your yeah. anything. And it is true. It's incredibly inclusive. And especially those younger places that people were all themselves and the world's, you know, finally caught up to make non more corporate environments. But I remember friends in, you know, the 90s, you know, couldn't say they were gay at a law firm. Yeah. And didn't want anyone to know. It had to be quiet because it would hinder their promotion and the way, you know, it would have to be something that was compartmentalized. And yet hospitality is, well, it's oh. our, our hospital. it never, ever had that. No, never. you could everyone. That's a great thing to remember at hospitality is you can be yourself. Yeah. You're just yourself. You're not putting on a work persona. You're yourself. And I think that's the interesting thing. Yeah. Maybe that's why we fell in love with it because you could just go in there and be an authentic self. Yeah. And encourage oh. that as well. Oh, absolutely. You need the personality. I said the quirky people and the are the difficult people to run. And I know when I go into restaurants, I know my favourite staff. I think, oh, I'm glad I'm not managing you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I know the fantastic person. I said, you've yeah. got to be careful. What's always good for the customers, you've got to have the balance. Yeah. You don't want it too easy because then you get a chain restaurant, you get a corporate restaurant. Yeah. You want that spice of everyone having their personality. Hugely, hugely. Yeah. So what happened after two then? After two, I met my wife. Uh-huh. And my wife came from... The film background, uh, film industry, yep. she was a producer. So this was when I was about 28, so about six years later. And at that stage, I had been offered, um, starting, you know, Jamie had hit and Nigella, and uh-huh. I'd been offered a cookbook to do um, by an English guy called Neil Whitaker, okay. who's now a big TV persona in Australia or personality. And I did my first cookbook, Sydney Food, and it was actually, it must have been a bit later, it was coming around 2000 for the Olympics, and it was, yeah, 98 uh-huh. that I did it. And I wrote this book, Sydney Food, and it became enormously successful. So much so that I remember the, the publishers released it in the UK. And as you know, with publishers, can't afford to spend you flying, you know, unless you're really big, flying around no. the world for press. Yeah. So I brought myself here. I'd never been to the UK. Oh. And I came here with Edie. Her daughter had just been born and promoted it. And so I said to the publishers, like, I'm going to be here now. And so, you know, book me in for interviews and things. And that's what I started doing. So, and then Natalie... We're asked to do a TV show by station as a personality. Then Natalie said, no, I don't do it, but we'll do one if we can produce it. So she produced TV. So that side of the business, the media side, was definitely, well, was Natalie's business really. That was, and, you know, I was the personality behind it, but I loved it because it's an extension, as you know. It's an extension of being front of house, talking to people. Yeah. It's communicating food and it's real, and I loved it. And then we did the next restaurant and... At the same time, while I managed more of the operations, Natalie did the media, and it just sort of went on. It just grew from there. Because I remember sort of watching you on TV, and I Mm. remember the book as well. And I think that whole thing were 
I think you are, I like to think I'm, I'm the same, that you're exactly the same person when you're in front of the camera as you are mm. off it. And I don't know about you, but I sort of thought when I first got offered TV that it was about saying, well, I can only be me. Yes. I don't really want to be overtly produced or have to be anything that I'm not. And I want to cook what I believe in. Oh, absolutely. Remember when when Gordon became big, it was so hard because suddenly everyone wanted you to have a <laughs> be yeah. difficult. You know, but, you know, I think the thing is you've got to be, it's like Jamie. Jamie is Jamie. Yeah. On camera, off camera. He's an he's authentic, yeah. and I think even Gordon is authentic. You know, he's got that side of him. You know, someone's seen it and thought, okay, we're going to work on that. Yeah. But I remember my wife gave me the best advice. She said, "Remember, all these people are being paid a lot of money to make you look good." Yeah. And I suddenly thought of that, and it takes a lot of pressure off you. And it's the same thing as a restaurant. Yeah. It's a collaborative business. Yeah. You're working with great sound guys, great directors, cameramen, and it's exactly the same. It's a group dynamic, even though. You're the one out in front of camera that people see at the end. It's not, you know, it's not an individual business. It's a group. Yeah. You work with a group and you've got to be, and it's fun. And I love learning about a new industry. It was like, oh, yeah. suddenly I've got a new, you know, a new job of, you know, because I was self-employed. Everything was always the same. The process of broadcasting, I think, is a, is a really exciting one. Oh. You. I, I think that, you know, actually to be able to put your message across and you're doing something that you're doing every day anyway, you know, mm. you're kind of cooking food and be able to do it and sort of see people's response to it. Is, oh. I think still to this day, I find it joyous. Oh, can you know, being able to communicate with food Yeah, and people, it's lovely. I mean, working in food and giving joy is really amazing. I have a friend who's a barrister and I remember saying, he's seeing in, people in conflict every day. That's what he's dealing with conflict. Yeah. And you forget that. And our business is, look, we have our conflict you know, there's, you know, with mm. work and people, but really ultimately at its heart, it's about giving something that people want. Yes. It's lovely. You know, and it's about looking after people. And I think with COVID, the worst thing about COVID was not being having the money or the takings to look after people and what was going to happen yeah. in the first week. And I think it's a quite a paternalistic business in a way because you just it's, you know, the heart of the home. I'm the, the sort of mum and the dad and I want to make food for all my customers. I want to look after them. I, I mean, want to do the same for my staff. Yeah, And again, I think that that's, again, I think something about people who are successful in hospitality. With COVID, I did sort of find that we were attacked quite a lot by saying, oh, you know, people are kind of losing their jobs, et cetera, mm. et cetera. But I know that everybody I value the opinion of in our hospitality mm. industry I don't know another industry that was so worried about what they were doing for their staff. Absolutely. And I'm not saying there weren't other industries did it, but I felt like everybody who does the job that we do go, how am I going to look after people? Well, it's the nature of, yeah, and it's yeah. people. We know each other. We know everyone's kids and families. And I, the, very, the big difference that people probably don't realise with hospitality is almost half your takings every week go on wages. Yeah. You know, or a wage-related yeah. cost. Unlike, say, you know, advertising where five, yeah. 10% of your income might go on. Yeah. On, on wages. So that's the big difference. You no business could keep paying people yeah. not open for more than a month. I mean, yeah. You just, even the best run, most successful businesses, you just couldn't do it. No. And, no. you know, wonderfully, governments around the world really jumped up and yeah, gave, yeah. yeah, you know, and gave support. But it was, gosh, it was horrible. Yeah. And start. it still makes me shudder now. I say, oh. you know, I, that, that whole thing of kind of laying people off, you go, oh. oh. But if I don't do this, then we aren't reopening. Yeah, and that was, you know, at that stage it was let's just reopen. We've just got to work out. Yeah. We've got enough there just to get the doors open again. Yeah. And, you know, crazy, crazy things. But, you know, one good thing or good training with the hospitality um, industry is you're constantly dealing with crises yeah, yeah. and putting out fires yeah. and yeah. have money straight out. You know, yeah. wouldn't know anyone in hospital who doesn't know how to yeah. hospitality how to deal with tight cash flow. Or, you know, we've all done it. 
It's not a surprise. No, no. It absolutely <laughs> you know, we isn't. can sort of, yeah, we've got those skills. Right, okay, now this is going to be good. We, we do, this is our little sort of break in the middle of your life oh, story. Good. Yeah. Uh, where every week we, we ask our, our our guests to kind of our, our barbecue and uh, oh, yes. see what we do there. Same five questions. Do you, I mean, obviously, I'm assuming that barbecue is a big part. I mean, that's just a terrible cliche. I do apologise. Like, of course, he's an Aussie. Oh, of course, he's going to do I it. I used to, my wife would always joke, we'd always get the, the call in about May in yeah. Australia. The, from the British TV company saying, yeah. do you want to come and do a barbecue show in yeah. Nigeria? Always, always, Every year always. it was funny. The Australian, he's got to be able to know how to throw a shrimp on the barbie. But isn't it true that that shrimp on the barbie expression actually came from Crocodile Dundee? Yeah, Paul Hogan expression. did it. You never say it in, in Australia. Never, never. He's a great comedian and yeah. he's incredibly good. And obviously we don't even call them shrimps. They're called prawns. Yes, that's it. <laughs> that's what they, I, remember, I remember saying that expression to John Tarode, Yeah, and he said, God, he said, like, you know, we've been friends for a long time. So you ever say that to me again, I'm going to smash you in the face. And the other thing is, in those days, we never threw a shrimp on the barbie. It was always a steak or a sausage. <laughs> Seafood, that's fancy, Nancy pants stuff. There you go. All of these years, Only meat. listen to this, we've just debunked that whole shrimp on the barbie memory. All right, so what is your favourite barbecue memory then? My favourite barbecue, I, look, I just grew up with them. My, um, it's such a part of Australian childhood, barbecues and pools and sun and hot concrete. And my yeah, grand... We didn't have that in Birkenhead. No, I know. It's funny, isn't it? For me, I just remembered my dad's barbecue and my grandfather was the worst cook because he was a butcher. There was always a ton of meat. It was just yeah. always meat. But in those days, they just, he just blackened it. I'm sure, yeah. you know, if I get cancer later on, I'll blame yeah. it on my grandfather's yeah. sausages. But it was also it was that great combination of being black on the outside and raw in the middle. Yeah, you know I don't know how you get it like that. And also barbecues have got better. I've got to say hugely. They're idiot proof now. In those days, it was just a gas bottle, one heat, none of the putting a lid down. Yeah, it was just yeah. So to be fair to my grandfather, they were harder. Yeah, they needed a bit more skill. But it was something men could do actually. I think for cooking. Yeah, the only cooking I remember my father or grandfather doing was the barbecue. It's funny, isn't it? It's almost like that sort of that masculine primal thing of mm. I am man I have flame I have meat I will cook I will prod badly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I will have the sort of barbecue tools that have been outside all year and yeah use them and prod exactly yeah and it's never been cleaned I'm still going to put this yeah. which is absolutely fine <laughs> um, do you have a do you have a favourite time of year when you'll barbecue I tend to well in Australia you know I don't know if people don't realise it here we have things called total fire band days uh-huh. so for most of summer because of the threat of fire you can't have an open flame but you can have a gas barbecue at home. Okay. So we always use gas in Australia. So it's the period for doing it is very long. Yeah. You can literally go and flick the switch, yeah. heat it up for five minutes and go out. I love autumn, I must say, like now. To barbecue now, I think it's great because it's still light enough. Yeah. Outside. It's not dark. It's not too damp yet. Yeah. It's not the coldest of spring. Summer's great, but in summer it's more cooking and it's hot outdoors. Yeah. So I think I almost yeah. prefer that thing now of, yeah yeah now the weather's turning it's a bit cooler and you can still bring that sunshine in and i love cooking meat outdoors because it doesn't make the house smell and, yeah and i always said the fire like every chef i send the fire alarms off because i cook everything yeah, on yeah. a really high heat of course yeah yeah, yeah you just have because it's funny because i i always say i like the autumn and winter time to cook outside because mm. there's just something 
I don't know. There's something quite nice about that kind of cold to hot, and the, the, I quite like the moisture in the air when yeah, you're cooking the piece of meat. Yeah, I do. And you know, when I feel, people always thought of barbecue summer, but I'm yeah. a great believer in any time to cook meat because I think meat on yeah. an open grill. I mean, I'll always, you know, you think of the Mongols, the big Turkish grills. You know, yeah. all year it makes sense. Yeah. And if you're yeah. lucky enough to have your barbecue gassed in, because a great thing you do in Australia, which most people don't do in the UK, uh-huh. but I think it's a really good tip. If you're doing any works, get a gas point yeah. put outside yeah. so you can just hook your um, barbecue up to the mains and you don't have to worry about changing the bottle over. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, so that's a really easy thing because you'll never have an empty bottle and then you can just use it as an extension of your kitchen. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, and it's really easy. It's not an expensive thing yeah, to yeah. do. It's just, especially if it's you know close to the kitchen, you just pop a pipe out. Fine, fine tip. Yes. Most ambitious thing you've ever cooked on a barbecue? Oh, the most ambitious. I think a whole chicken. Yeah. It was a disaster. Oh, really? Yeah. It was well, that's the... the next question. So we can do two birds with one stone oh, next okay. week. Yeah, well, in the, that day, it was the days of old barbecues. Okay. Where you're cooking it without a lid. Yeah, yeah. And so trying to do a whole chicken. Yeah. On just the grill with the heat that's yeah. on the thing it took. It's just that thing of having raw food very late. Yeah. You know, I don't think we ate till about 10. <laughs> and if you, if you, if you had it. I mean, I think your tip has been really, I think you're, you're getting your gas extension is the one. So when you're barbecuing, do you, do there's certain things that you like, are there certain rubs and marinades that you always sort of find yourself going? Oh, loads. I think with barbecues, you're just thinking, okay, you're grilling. So it's about texture mm-hmm. for me. That's the biggest thing. If you're using a grill, you get this great texture on that you won't get for an oven or the stovetop yeah. um, without a ton of smoke and mess. So... If you work on that idea of the texture that you don't want to take away, so I think dry rubs are great because you don't want too much oil on it because yeah. it makes it flame up yeah. and you just get things burnt. So I think yeah. dry rubs and spice is good. But I also love marinating afterwards. So the idea of cooking like a butterfied leg of lamb, which is the best yeah. you know, thing to do, or a shoulder that's been boned, barbecue yeah. that, then pop it on a plate and rest it with the marinade over it. So just chop nice. up. I did a, you know, like a chimichurri the other night with some chopped parsley, a bit of coriander, some rice wine vinegar in there, uh-huh. salt, pepper, some chili flakes, and just olive oil, and then drench like a dressing over it and let it rest. Yeah. And that flavour went in and gave it a freshness afterwards, which I think you often want. That, that yeah. I think that's a really lovely tip because you're right, you know, I, I'm, don't get me wrong, I, I love a kind of marinade, but yeah, sometimes you kind of feel the beautiful freshness of those ingredients. Then if you then, slap that onto flames, you almost lose that. Whereas you go the other way and say, right, okay, what do I really want? What I want is the is that delicious flame-grilled mm. meat flavour yeah. and then freshen that up. Absolutely. I think you almost want to season it. If you think rather than marinades, a marinade yeah. used to be such a big thing and you know, a part of it is also because we're never that organised yeah. to marinate something yeah. for the day before. It's like, no. I don't know what I want to eat the day before. No. So I think marinades, yeah, and you think of most grills, it's like you know, Turkish or Greek, it's quite simple. Yeah. But you can just add a bit of flavour to a last minute. I love using a bit of fish sauce and sugar for a Vietnamese style. Yeah. Because it'll give a bit of caramelising and, and see, you know, fish sauce is basically a salt, so you're seasoning yeah. it. But, yeah, I don't think you need to marinate it because you do, and you don't want the meat too soft. I don't mind a bit of the chew. No, You've I'm got to the enjoy same. the chew. Yeah yeah. 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 yeah, I'm the same. Well, the final thing we do in this little section yeah. is, is our recipe challenge. Ah. Um, so, basically, you have 45 seconds. Mm. 
that's funny. I've just as I'm just turning on my stopwatch, my uh, my son has just sent me a text and what are you cooking for my tea tonight? <laughs> I always get that. I know they're bored at school. What's for dinner? Yeah. Um, so you have 45 Another seconds. Another thing we've got in common. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this might be what I'm going to cook Hamish for tea tonight. Oh, okay. There's no, there's no pressure. You. So you have 45 seconds. You have any cut of meat, any cut of fish, any vegetables. Okay. Some kind of marinade rub or dressing mm. um, and a side dish. Okay. okay. So you have 45 seconds starting from now. Well, after being having that disaster raw chicken dinner, <laughs> trying to cook a whole chicken, I wanted to do a barbecue chicken that had the taste of like barley chicken, barley fried chicken, which is delicious in Indonesia. So what I do is get a chopped chicken, put it in a saucepan with a tin of coconut milk, another tin of water, add a teaspoon of turmeric, some ginger, garlic, a chopped up onion, some salt, a bit of a tablespoon of salt. So quite a lot of salt. You want to really season it. And then just simmer that for 20 minutes. And that can be like whole legs on the bone, anything on the Ten bone. Ten seconds left. And then basically <laughs> take it out, dry it, like let it dry, yeah. and then just barbecue it. And you've got the most delicious wow. chicken. It goes good. Then the barbecuing's about the texture. It makes it golden and crunchy and delicious. What are we serving it with? Um, oh, some steamed rice, a coleslaw, an Asian slaw. Beautiful. 50, 50 that, actually, that, that sounds really, really delicious. It's great because you can just finish it off, which is a good winter thing. You can have it cooked the day before, if you get organised, yeah. if you like to be organised, and then just throw it on the um, barbecue. All right, so the, the point we got to with your story mm. was that you've got a TV career, you've yep. got books, um, and we've got some bills. When did you move out of Australia? When did the oh, okay. first non-Aussie one happen? Well, the first non-Aussie one happened in Japan. So that was about 15 years ago. I got a call from a friend and he said, I've got these people I know in Japan and they love, love the idea of doing a restaurant. You know, would you, and they love what you do. Would you like to chat to them? So I did. And I'd lived in Japan when I was younger for three months, or not lived, or spent some time there and loved it. And then thought, yeah, why not? It was a bit of an yeah. adventure. So I did pop-ups there for about two years doing things. and. We opened this restaurant. The initial idea, my partners there had worked in sports management, so they'd worked in personalities. So they understood that sort of thing. The initial thing was to do a restaurant and then we can develop you as a personality and sell other things around that. I said, okay, sure, why not? Yeah. Give it a try. But the restaurant became so popular, like seven-hour queues because it was like, no. and that we just have gone into the restaurant business in Japan. So now we have eight. And it's amazing. We started the craze for fluffy pancakes. You know the fluffy yeah, yeah, yeah. fluffy pancakes. Yeah. Bills have started that. It's been an extraordinary journey. We, I love Japan. I love but when Japanese you when people. you started that, Bill. How yeah. difficult was it to run a business in another country? Impossible. Not impossible. <laughs> it was impossible. But I had to learn. Like yeah, again, yeah. liking that second restaurant. Yeah. Hey, you manage that. You've got to learn. Yeah. So you've got to set up everything. And the wonderful thing about Japan is the Japanese culture is about the harmony of the group. Okay. Not the individual. So. You know, with chefs and people wanting to do things differently, you've always got to say, no, no, do it. This is the way you do mm -hmm. it again. It's like a constant thing. Yeah. You do it this way. You do it this way. I like it this way. Yeah. In Japan, I'll go six months later and they'll be doing it the same way. And actually, they'll be doing it a bit better, if yeah. I'm really honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was a gradual thing, um, learning how to do that and, and learning how to be remote, okay. which was interesting. Um, and that gave us the confidence because we'd had three children. Bunny had just started school. Edie was seven, I think. Yeah. Bunny was three. And then Ness was five. And we'd always, after traveling to the UK, back and forth for media, everyone said, oh, when are you opening a restaurant here? And I finally, we finally thought that we don't come. We're never going to do it. Yeah. And we have to be here to make it happen. It's just not going to happen by not being here. You yeah. can't. And so we moved here with three kids 12 years ago, three, 
three kids. We had the restaurants in Australia. I had a lovely guy that used to work with me that had a customer had come in and was running the Yaman Group. You know, the Yaman, yeah. the very fancy hotels. And he was a chef with, at the time. Yeah. And he'd gone there and become a chef and then become a general manager. And he had come back to Sydney and he loved being left alone because he used to be running resorts independently. Yeah. So he still runs a business in Australia. So he runs that there and enabled us to come here. And then 10 years ago, we opened the first restaurant. That seems a big, big leap. Why Britain particularly? They always held that appeal from when you first came. Oh, there's a funny personal story. My Well, I hadn't been before 2000, right. so that was the first time I'd come. I'd grown up watching, in Australia in my generation, I'd watched the ABC, which is like the BBC, so all the British yeah. TV shows. So culturally, yeah. I was you know familiar with it. Well, I'm just kind of thinking, when it started, I said, what was Melbourne like? He said, did you watch Neighbours? Neighbours, yeah. I said, yeah. Well, I'm sort of thinking, hopefully you didn't watch Coronation Street or EastEnders, because no, that well, would really stop you wanting to come to the UK. <laughs> well, I was surprised when I got here how pretty London was, because I just watched the bill. <laughs> That's all I'd seen all of a sudden. You know, you know, I'd never really seen anything. I said, London's really beautiful. I didn't realise London is a really beautiful city. <laughs> Yeah. It's really funny the way I think you know Brits are very sort of good at putting down yeah. what exists here, and they don't really export that yeah. sort of beauty in the way Americans are good. That LA is beautiful. So, you go there, it's really ugly. So go on. So, so you said you know the uh, I would come here. Oh, my wife was when I met her. She was about to move to London, right? And she was in Melbourne, and she decided to move to Sydney. So we always joked that I owe her time in London, and she'd lived in Notting Hill, and when she was eighteen, nineteen, yeah, and she wanted to come back and live here. So that was the thought. We thought we'll give it a year yeah. with the kids. It's a bit of a fun break, an adventure. You know, I, I was had a book I wanted to write, which I did. Bill's Basics. Yeah, I knew enough people from doing a bit of TV appearances. Yeah, of you know over the years to have a few things to do, but it was just nice to have some time actually. And um, from when you moved over to when you opened the first Bills, was the first Bills Notting Hill? Yep. Yeah. Which I have queued up outside many, oh, really? many times. Yeah, Use Granger & Co. Actually, it's not Bills here. I keep on saying Bills. Yeah. But it's Granger & Co. here too. Yeah. It's not the Bills in the UK. Uh, sorry, yeah. I know, yeah. yeah. No, I've got to remind myself. Yeah. But yeah, Granger & Co., it was two years it took. Yeah. I ran into my partner I, because I'd never, I'd always just done it organically and never taken on a partner. Yeah. And then I ran into Will Champion, who was the drummer in Coldplay. Uh-huh. And ran from the street. I'd met him through another friend when they were in Sydney and they'd invite us in. They used to love coming to the restaurant. Yeah. So they'd said, oh, you know, these guys, they invite them to come into the, um, to their PAs to come yeah. into the, see the show. So, you know, one day I got a call saying, oh, Colpa, I'd love you to hear some tickets. I thought, great. So I met cool. Will and, yeah. and Johnny and I ran into him on the street and, you know, started chatting, saying hi. And he said, oh, if you ever need an investor in a restaurant, let me know. And so I thought, oh, maybe that would be good because... It's got to be expensive yeah. to do a restaurant here. So Will and Johnny, um, Buckley's bandmate, became uh, still my partners wow. in the first restaurant in Notting Hill because he lived locally and we just did And how, first how much did Granger & Co.'s menu differ from what you were doing in Australia, never, never mind Japan? Well, it's interesting. I think I wanted to, the biggest thing about wanting to live here, and I lived here two years, was to understand the way I wanted to eat and live in London, my pattern, because I think yeah. restaurants can't just be transplanted from somewhere else. You've got yeah. to understand the way you live in that neighbourhood. Because the way you use it, even from street to street, is so different. Yeah. And that idea of going out in the morning 10 years ago was just no one did it. No one. No one at all. And I felt I wanted to do it. I still wanted to go for coffee because, you know, as everyone in the UK now, I'm addicted to coffee. As a Australian, I'm yeah. addicted to a good coffee and I like to go for my coffee. It's part of my morning ritual. Yeah. And so it, 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 I went more, what I really missed when I was here was more the flavors of Asia. Okay. So I think in the menu, I'd, in Australia at that time, I'd gone a bit more Mediterranean, but 
after working in Japan, the flavors of Japan and traveling, I really miss that here. So I think the menu initially, especially, was much more leaning towards Asia because I felt that's what you couldn't get here. Yeah. Mixed up, not obviously Asian, but just a few of those flavors and that lightness. Yeah. And the menu was a bit bigger because we wanted to open breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. Um, because that was important. And remember when we first opened, dinners were really busy, but lunches and breakfasts were yeah. dead. And then gradually, yeah. over time, people realized they could come out and eat here. You didn't have to book. You could just turn up. And was it busy from, from the get-go? Yeah, it was pretty busy. I think I remember openings. We didn't do any PR or anything. And I knew a girl who, when I, the, my publisher here, yeah. who did the PR. I remember you know, she helped me out. And at the start, I called her. I said, oh, I think we need to get something because yeah. <laughs> I was suddenly in a yeah. panic. Because it's that thing with restaurants, new restaurants, you don't want PR because you want it to have time yeah, for you, you to get neighbourhoods. Yeah. It's really hard when you get reviews and things early because all yeah. you want to do is let the customers yeah. develop because you can get it ready, but re- customers are what make a restaurant. The staff is what make the restaurant. Yes, and that all needs time to settle in. But it's the customers who tell you what they want. Yeah. yeah it's not me. I can only give them what is an idea, but then over time you realise what people like. I think one of the things that I, I – so when did when did Grange Co open? Ten years ago. Ten years ago. November. Right. So the thing that – I mean, anyone who doesn't know the stretch where it is – there are many, many restaurants along there mm. that come and go, come and go, come oh. and go. And you're still there. And genuinely, yeah. there are queues outside your restaurant every day, seven days a week. Yeah, it's mad. What is it then that makes that continue to be the case? Because 10 years with queues yeah, it's is pretty, exceptional. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, I remember when we first took the site, everyone said to me, do you know it's been a few restaurants, don't you? So it's been yeah. about five over the past three years. Yeah. I said, yeah, because yeah, everyone has an idea about jinx sites, and I never believe in a jinx site. Yeah. Um, and we missed out. I remember when I missed long, someone else was there, and we missed out. They were going to sell it, and they didn't. Yeah. And I'd walk past every day with a dog and think, oh, God, I really, it's still right. So yeah. when it came back a year later, we got it. But I think I care about what I do. Yeah. And something's always wrong. I go in there every day all of them, and I'm always working on how we do a better job. And you never take it for granted. You could never take yeah. a customer for granted. They're the reason. You know, and that's a hard thing to also let all the team know because if they're really busy and people are always coming, they sort of don't know what it's like when you don't have customers there. Yeah. And I've always got – that's the way you build a business by customer by customer, and everyone is so precious, as you know, being a restaurant. How changed from the first menu that you did 10 years ago? Not a lot. Yeah. Not a lot. I mean, still the classics are still there. I've never changed over 25 years, the breakfast yeah. things. But a lot of the things are coming back, actually, I think was quite interesting after the pandemic and reopening. We all wanted a bit of comfort. And that idea of being classic is really interesting. And after 10 years, you almost become part of the neighborhood. And yeah. I remember reading an article in the New York Times and it talked about how people just wanted to go back for their you know, favorite steak at Balthazar or yeah. you know, to go to their favorite things, what they do. And I think in this you know, media, hype, food press, all of the latest and the greatest and the newest, it's really lovely to be an older restaurant where you can just do what you do. Like my favorite restaurant in London is River Cafe. Yeah. You know, it's over 30 years old and, you know, they've still got a few of the dishes on there. And the essence of it's grown. It started out, I think, about a 24-seaters. I'm just trying to think of they have the, the drawing in the start of yeah, the first yeah, yeah. cookbook and yeah. it's grow. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's the thing. We've got to, yeah, tell anyone who wants to open a restaurant, yeah. it's 24 seats. Don't do yeah. more. 24 to 30 seats, that's it. That's, that's that, it. That's the key to success. Yeah. Do you think that... <sighs> The other thing that's happened, I think, pandemically, post-pandemic, is the fact that people want to spend their money with independents. And okay, I know you have plenty of restaurants, as do I, but nonetheless, you're still the face of your business, I'm still the face oh, yeah, of my business. Oh, yeah, it's me. And therefore, do you feel that customers are going, you know what, if I'm going to spend my money, I'd rather spend it with Bill Granger because I know he cares about this, rather than with a faceless chain 
who is owned by a by a, a corporate. No brand. one cares about the business like I do. Yeah. And no one cares about your yeah. business the way you do. And I think that's the thing is you really know when you go to a restaurant whether someone cares about it. Yeah. Uh, my parent, my mother always says you'd go into someone with clean windows. And I think that's a really good thing even now. Yeah. If the windows are clean, because you know someone gives a shit. They care about it. The yeah. flowers aren't dead. The pot plants are being watered and not dying. You know, someone's watching yeah. and caring about that stuff and the details. And it's light just, bulbs. That's yeah, light bulbs. Yeah. Oh, light bulbs are out. It's a nightmare. Yeah. It's like, guys, we'll just. Yeah. And people don't see it when you're in the restaurant all the time, but the great thing of not working in the one spot all the time is you have fresh eyes to go in and see yes. those things you don't get when you're worried about you know, yeah. getting the food out in time. Yeah. So I think that's, and it's not about money. For me, the restaurants, I love it's never about making money. It's about doing a good job. And yeah. I think that's the important thing about independence and most independence, you know, because bigger businesses have shareholders. They're responsible for a lot of other things. Do you think as well that just on a general business level mm. now, that almost say the model that you and I believe in as businessmen is that, yes, of course, I want to make money. It's my job. Mm. But I don't want to make money at the expense of the experience for both my staff and for my customers. No. Do you almost feel that, Again, coming back to sort of the, the, the chain restaurant, the rollout kind of model mm. in general, that almost that will have to happen. We've got staff shortages. We've got food prices going up. And instead of saying, right, what's the bottom line? We have to hit this bottom line going, right, okay, what's a realistic level that we can operate at? And we have to say, right, well, that, that's a realistic mm. bottom line. Rather than saying, okay, look, we've got to hit 21% on the bottom line. The reality is 11 will make this a much better business. Yeah, and that's what you've got to understand. And for me, that's the long-termism. And I love restaurants. I went to this restaurant. I was in Athens over summer. It's 150 years old. In Japan, I've gone to 300-year-old restaurants. Yeah. And it's that long-termism. When I say, you know, you don't want to make enough money, it's totally self-serving because I know I still want a business. Yeah. I want people to come back in. Yeah. I want a business here in five years, 10 years. Yeah. And when you say about queues, it's because I invest in it. And profit's not a bad word. You've got to make money. So I can get the building painted. So I can buy, spend money on good flowers. I can get the bonquettes reupholstered. Yeah. I can pay staff bonuses. I can buy a new uniform, a creative thing. So profit's important to reinvest, yeah. not to take out. And I think that long-term thinking, and you do it instinctively when it's your own job. Yeah. Because you've got to look after your job for five years, 10 years, 15 years. It's all I can do. I'm, un I'm totally unemployable. I've never Same, had a job. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I have to. So that I think that's... The difference with independent retailers, businesses, food yeah. shops, you know, even something like Waitrose, they look after their people. Yeah. It's long term. I love the way, you know, and I, it's not been easy for anyone. But I think that idea of, and I think the world's shifting a bit, not, and yeah. I've got a lot from Asia, that idea of longer term businesses, relationships, not everything is about bus bucks or flipping yeah. a business. Yeah. Because I think there's a, there's a certain sector of business that feels it's about winning. And I've never really embraced that in any way, shape, or form. I don't want to win at anything. No. I want to have a great business. No, that you're proud of. Yeah. Your peers, you know, I think that your peers admire, that you like. Yeah. You want to go into every day. And I think I could never, yeah. And some people are motivated by different things and go and do bigger things. But I think for me, I just want to be motivated by it. Yeah. And love it. And because especially with the creative side of me, what I do is – the creative I see of myself and I've set up a business in a yeah. way that someone else can worry about the bottom line, but I can be worried about the product and we've always got the tussle. Okay. When can we spend that? What we can do that. Yeah. And it's that balance. It's really, yeah. you know, getting that balance right. So what's next? I mean, you know, we're, we're both not in our twenties anymore. No. Is there, is there an end game to it or is it, no. enjoy it as it goes? My father still works. He's 75. My mother-in-law still works. Yeah. He's 70, part time, not as much, yeah. but I think, 
I'm not happy retiring. I don't really want to sell no, me neither. live. I enjoy people. It keeps yeah. me engaged. It keeps me young. It's strange now when I was talking to one of the, the staff and she's 30, Brenda, and I was saying, oh, how are your parents? Are they very old? She's like, oh, I think they're your age. And I'm talking to, behind yeah. the bar. I think I'm the same age as her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not the kids who are like, you know, 21, yeah. 22, they feel young. But yeah. the 29-year-olds, the 30-year-olds, I feel like they're my age and realising I'm the same yeah. age as someone's parents. But I think that's a very good mental thing. Because, again, like you're saying, in hospitality is great for lots of different things. I think age is a big thing with hospitality now that yeah. there's a much bigger variation of age. All the people are coming back into the yeah. workforce that we can all, it's just the energy of, I love having customers I see on the street. You know, I yeah. chat to everyone. I like a chat yeah. with lots of people and knowing my, my, it's my community. And I think with the pandemic, what I realized, because it's easy to get exhausted, not easy, all of us, doesn't matter what you do. You know, yeah. can take what you have for granted and get tired by it yeah. and think, oh, is there something else? But actually the pandemic was an enforced stop from it and it yeah. made me appreciate what I loved about what I have, Yeah, which so. was really, really, really good. And almost not to have that fear or the worry, to look at the things you enjoy about it and just, yeah, take yeah. that, yeah, don't take that for granted. Yeah. And uh, don't get worn down by the other stuff, which uh, I think we're all exhausted. Why everyone at the start of the pandemic, well, I think everyone was quite relieved to have a rest. I, yeah, first <laughs> lockdown, I, I actually quite like. The, fi the final thing we do on Grilling Bill yeah. is that we can go anywhere in the world. You're going to take me Ooh. to somewhere that's your little kind of secret place, or somewhere you think, you know what? If mm. I was going to take Simon anywhere in the world, I've got to take him to. It can be anything—a coffee shop, a, a restaurant, oh, something okay. that's food-based. Where are we going? Okay, well, I've got to take you. I mean, it's hard. I love Japan, but I think I want to take you down to Sydney. Okay. Because to Bondi Beach, and I know it sounds very obvious, but I think for me it really helps explain the way I cook and the way okay. I live. And we have a little restaurant down there, and it's the external nature of the city, the outdoors, the rough urbanness. It's not a beautiful beach in the middle of, you know, paradise. It's urban. Uh -huh. So I think people forget about that. about Sydney. It's a city on the beach, but there are urban beaches in the way Venice Beach is in yeah. LA, but incredible natural beauty. And you've got the health thing there. You've got the fitness. You've got everyone out there enjoying the street. You've got the Australian, very old Aussie friendliness and laconic charm still down there, which I love. That old thing of the same old guys have been hanging around there yeah. forever. And it's that neighborhood. And I think that would make you understand. And you have a coffee. The first cafe opens there at 4.30 a.m., the surfers, <laughs> which is great. So you go down there. Oh, we're just going to eat a bit of grilled fish with a really beautiful dressing and salad. A bit of knock charm, a bit of lemon juice, olive oil, really, and a salad. You know, I love a salad, a yeah, big bowl same. of salad with a bit of grill and in a beautiful environment and just the light for me it's the light that makes everything sparkle and i think it would really make you understand the way i cook and what i try to do in all the restaurants is even with notting hill yellow awnings it's just the fake sun yeah to have that sparkle and that joy and that yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you miss Fun. the light is that the thing if you were to yes. say one thing that you miss about Australia? miss the light yeah. i love the light even today it's you know more autumn and i quite like that as well yeah. but i do love that landing and jumping off the plane yeah. and just being blinded. I remember someone who worked in TV said they came to Australia to work and they said Australia is, I think, five, notch over five notches overexposed <laughs> or something. And it's like that. It just hits you that well, light. Because I've never been to Australia, but I, I do California quite a bit. And I have the same thing. When mm. I go to California, there's something about that quality of light that makes you feel good. Mm. And I always think when I come back from holidaying in California, the thing I dislike most when I come back to the UK 
is the lack of that quality of yeah. light. And it is it is almost like, you know, someone's turned down that brightness on your eyes for a little while. Yeah, it does. And I must say, by the end of the summer, yeah. sometimes you're just like, oh, just knock it down a bit. It gets so bright. <laughs> but I think it is that light, that optimism and the light. But having said that, the UK. I love that, the UK. That darker light, the coziness and the, the gr- it's quite grounding as well. Yeah. So there's a flip side and everywhere yeah. has it. But when this you sunny in the UK, like. Yesterday afternoon, I just wanted to. It's just there's no better place in the world. Yeah, and you're not going to get bitten by, get bothered by a fly, bitten by a mosquito, <laughs> or sunburn. <laughs> Bill, it's 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 so lovely to see you. I mean, oh. you know, we we've not seen each other a long time, and discovering today that we've had a terrifyingly parallel kind of path in the early part of our careers is uh is a, is a revelation. I know it's very very weird. No one else I've ever spoken to in food has had such a similar same. journey. Yeah, ever same. Listen, it's always great to see you, mate, and good luck with whatever you do. And um, I'll wave to you when I'm in the queue. (laughs) I'll sneak you in. (laughs) Thanks. Cheers, mate. Thanks so much to Bill for joining us on Grilling. So remember, if you're thinking of starting out in the restaurant industry, you need to go to art college, open somewhere that's anything from 25 to 30 covers, and then blag it. Now, hopefully Bill's given you a few ideas as to what's possible in the kitchen and on a Weber barbecue. Head to Weber.com for plenty more recipe ideas, from racks of lamb to salads and, of course, kebabs and burgers. And don't forget, check out that £50 discount to their grill academies at Weber.com forward slash grilling. Do review, rate and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and tell your friends about it too. Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Thanks for listening. Listener.